So we're still in Isaiah 61. And uh, I want to kind of hone in to what is most of the last bit. So Isaiah 61, and we're going through, we've been in verse 1 through 3. And, um, And up until this point, what we've been covering together is more or less, with one notable exception, uh, we've been covering what Jesus quoted uh, in, in Luke when he stepped into his ministry. He, he quoted from this text. He put it at the, at the center of, of his, not just his mission, but because he made a declaration that he was the fulfillment of it. What that means is that in his person is the fulfillment of all of these hopes. Because he hadn't done anything yet, particularly. Right? And I repeat that every week because I think it's really important because it, it's, it's a significant thing for us to remember that in the ease of the person of Jesus we find the kingdom show up. Not in the striving of Jesus. When he shows up, things change. And this is important. This is very important for us. So Isaiah carries on. Uh, well, Jesus kind of cuts things off when he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. Right? And then as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, because we were so wonderfully hijacked last Sunday by the Holy Spirit, uh, which is, we're open for that stuff to happen whenever. That's awesome. Um, so we talked about uh, this sort of day of, of vengeance, right? And how Jesus had omitted that from his quotation of it. He stopped mid-sentence, literally. And so we kind of explored what was going on with that. And I don't want to unpack it all now. If you weren't there, yeah, the audio is available on the website, which we're trying to keep up to date, usually within, usually by the end of the week. It's posted on the website. So, um, Isaiah carries on, though, and I think that it's not unreasonable to say that even though Jesus did not quote this language. He stopped where he stopped to make a point. But I think that this passage as a whole uh, was pertinent enough that it carries, that the rest of this carries, the rest of this signifies. Because it's one complete thought in terms of Isaiah the prophet, right? Speaking to people who are in need of a savior, in need of redemption, in need of identity, in fact, in need of a place where they can encounter God again because they've more or less lost that in the temple. It's not been destroyed yet, but they're, out, they're, they're not able to access it, most of them. So he's speaking to these people. So Isaiah carries on, Isaiah 61, 2, the second half of verse 2, into 3, says this. Um, and again, the context is, I have been anointed. The Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news, right? Freedom for captives. We've been through this. The Lord's anointed me to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. This is the NIV. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So 
So this is the Lord meeting people. Really, he's just kind of unpacked, you know, the sorrows of people and how God is coming to redeem them as a people in their sorrows, in their losses, in their brokenness. And here he levels it out and he says to, to, to comfort all who, who mourn. Right? And, and by the way, we're not going to spend all of our time kind of walking around in the sewers of what it means to be a human being uh, as a church. Um, but it's important that we know that God meets us in the very, very bottom places. He does elevate us. He lifts us up. He calls us onto something. But there is not a depth of feeling that we will not encounter and cannot encounter the presence of God. We may not always feel Him in that place, but we will always encounter Him in that place. I'm thankful that the word all is there. All who mourn. Right? Not the good ones who mourn, Not those who are mourning because they're victims. All who all who are broken profoundly, God will encounter. God will comfort. And for me, the, the, in, the in the language, the comfort of uh, to, to comfort somebody who is in mourning is to be is to what? What does it mean to comfort somebody who is who's mourning? Yeah. Come alongside. To come alongside them, that's a really, really good answer. In fact, that's often, that's often where we should put a period at the end of that sentence. Right? To come alongside them. And is there anything else though, that comes to mind in that space? I'm going to call it a healthy answer. It's a healthy silence, you guys. Let's remember that one. It's a hard one to practice being in the middle of it. Being a man of words, I can, <laughs> I can say that. Um, comfort all who mourn. So God is near, He's present. So it, it goes on, and, and, and this translation says, to provide for those who grieve in Zion. Now, that's an interesting phraseology. It's an interesting to provide for those who are or grieving. So, what what kinds of things come to mind when you think of that phrase? What so God is going to provide for those who are in grief? I mean, what do we do? What's the first thing we do when people are in grief around us, and we and they're in need? Physical contact. Yeah, feel what they feel. I think of all of those, I think that the food picture, the food thing, is really appropriate in this. Because food strengthens us. Food keeps us alive. 
which becomes much less important to us when, some, when we are in grief. We care less about that, actually. It's part of what we struggle with, our own sense of mortality. So food keeps us into some kind of rhythm. There's a sustenance that takes place in that. Um, what I love is that the... I've just given up on trying to tell you what the Hebrew words are because it's just it's embarrassing. But, um, There's something in the language of the Hebrew that speaks to like a reforming, a restructuring, like a strengthening from the inside, a setting, like like resetting a stone in a ring, setting in place that takes place. That's a kind of inferred in that. It's to establish, right? To I think there's something in this where the Holy Spirit comes to those who are in grief, and I've experienced this, you guys. I believe this. That our feet find the ground again. The, the, Lord, the Lord can do that for us. You know, the when and I think that it and we're not gonna unpack all of this, what it means, because this is actually not about grief this morning. It's just setting a, a, a stage or something. But I do want to say that that requires a leaning in on Jesus to find, to find the foundation that he will set for us in our grief. But, but that's part of what he does is he puts our feet, he puts us back on our feet. Not in a, I'm strong, I'm going to bootstrap my way through this, and, but just terra firma, man. Like, I need to know that I'm not sinking kind of rootedness. That's part of what this word speaks to Speaking to a profound remaking, a fashioning, an establishing, which is a miracle, because what grief does is it tears us apart. We suddenly become very fragile, right? So much promise in this stuff. Um, and I'm going to give away just a little bit of a, a little bit of next week's closing piece in all of this. We're going to unpack this further, but I just. One of the reasons why I think this passage is so significant and important for us is not just because it provides a framework for us to encounter God personally in our, in our deep places and to become a vulnerable and honest people, which is part of what this kind of scripture does to us because it pulls us into a place where we need to encounter God. It also demonstrates for us and gives us language what it is that God does. Like, what is the mission, right? It is more than, it is saving souls. I mean, I believe in that language. I believe in the language of being saved. I, you know, I'm not willing to let go of that language just because it's become a bumper sticker kind of thing, right? But it is more than the saving of souls. It is encountering people in their deepest darkest, most painful places and bringing them back into community and light and hopefulness and that is the kingdom and that is what we engage in in the world around us this is what we invite people towards not a set of beliefs I mean, yeah, sure, yes, a set of beliefs right at the center of it, not a set the, set, the, the beliefs form a frame around the painting 
right? The painting is the quality of how God moves in this world and how God wants to move through us. And it looks like this stuff. I believe. At least that's what we're called to. That's the lane that the vineyard is called to, right? And I think most places would say, yeah, no, it's pretty good. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. But we know, we can declare firmly that this is centered. Okay, enough. Moving on. So, there are three things that, um, let's call them qualities of grace, right? So, like, what is it, what does it smell like? What, is, what does comforting the poor, or comforting those who are grieving, and building up those who are grieving? You know, when you, when you walk into the room, the kitchen of God's grace, it's like there's three distinct scents, right? There's meals that are being prepared, and they're distinct, and they serve particular needs. So one is to bestow on the grieving a crown of beauty. The other is uh, to bestow on the grieving uh, joy instead of mourning. It's beauty instead of ashes, actually. That's an important distinction. Crown of beauty instead of ashes. Joy instead of mourning. And then to clothe the, the, the grieving in the morning with garments of praise rather than a spirit of despair. It's a very important language. Okay, so we're going to unpack those three things this morning. And the first thing was an aha moment for me. So, when it speaks of a crown of beauty in the place of ashes, what has kind of come to my mind over the years is like ashes are, are a destruction of a thing, Right? And so Beauty for Ashes, as in the fantastic Kevin Prosh song from like the early 90s. Taking the broken Whatever, melody, I remember the melody, I've forgotten words here in a moment. But Beauty for Ashes. I love that power, the power of that metaphor. That's beautiful to me. Right? Um, so what's interesting is the actual text, what it, what it actually sort of speaks to is it says the Lord's going to give you a turban instead of ashes. So you can see why the translators did a bit of work on that one. Because that doesn't really mean a lot. Hey, good news. You're going to get a turban instead of the ashes of your life. Cool. I, that's, that's weird. It is a covering. It also invokes two distinct images in the Hebrew imagination, which is what we need to sort of step into in order to understand what Isaiah is talking about. So the language of turbans shows up in, most profoundly for me, in the priesthood. When I, you know, I've spent some time, part of my regular reading right now has me in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, that's fun stuff. I can tell you that is my favorite stuff. Um, particularly the very meticulous detailing of what priests wore. Have you ever seen like purple pomegranates are part of? Literally, that's part of the. They wear purple pomegranates. Like, what is that? Um, 
But the, but the turban was a really, really significant part of priestly garb, right? And where does a turban go? Well, a turban goes on, on our heads. It's a, it's, it's a covering, right? That's what Ryan says. It's a covering. Um, so when I think about that, all of a sudden the ashes thing starts to take on a whole different meaning. Because what do ashes on foreheads or on heads, what does that typically mean in the Hebrew mind? Does anyone know? Actually, it's, it's the desolation of sin. Right? It's the desolation of, like, when, so when, when David was, like, completely undone and had realized that he was a murderer and an adulterer and a schemer, right? That was met with ashes. That's part of that language. Ashes on my head. Right? It's a, it, it has to do with unworthiness, actually. Right? This is, Burning coals. These are all similar metaphors, right? There's an unworthiness in this language. And so, when we see this, this idea of a turban, it's like it's also, by the way, a wedding garb, predominantly. So you see priesthood, which means a lot, you guys. It means a lot to us. And someday we'll unpack that promise. That like the priests are not the ordained ministers, but the priests are actually whoever follows Jesus, because because we're the ones who get to be in the presence of God and to conduit the graces of God. So essentially, the priesthood. So he's saying he's saying I'm giving you back your I'm giving you back your purposes. I'm giving you back your dignity. I'm giving you back your nearness to me. What good is a turban without a temple? Right? These are people in exile. There's so much that's kind of embodied in the promise of this image. Right? And so for those who are grieving because they feel like they stepped so far outside of the center of God's will, understand that these people who were in exile thought they deserved it. That's the language. This was punishment. Punishment for idolatry, which is the number one sin, by the way, if you look through the Old Testament, like particularly through the Ten Commandments. Right? Like that's a big that's the big that's the thing that gets talked about a bunch of times is replacing God. Right? Well they had replaced God and they thought that this was punishment for them. And so suddenly here's a reinstatement. Right? And if you've ever known the grief of fundamentally failing in your core calling, then this is like the perfect temperature water when you are absolutely thirsty. Like to be given back who you are as a human being and your purposes, that's a different kind of grief. And, and that's covered here. There's a reinstatement, and I'm so thankful for that. So we can do the beauty for ashes thing and like that, but I, I love how specific this language actually is. And that was a bit of an eye opener for me. So the oil of joy in the place of mourning. So this word, when it talks about mourning here, it's talking about the thing we think of, right? When we are grieving because of death, when we have lost and we are in grief, that's what this is referring to. So the oil of joy, this is, Again, like all of this, by the way, comes into the language of priesthood. Like I think it's actually a lot stronger in this image than we would give credit for.
for, so that's always been part of this. Um, but here's an interesting thing. So it's an anointing oil, right? It's it's some it's 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 a beautification. Like it's it's actually creating beauty. It's it's a kind of almost adornment, like. Um, when uh, when Song of uh, Songs, right, which is which is the most sort of visceral like um, language of the scriptures, it's it's uncomfortable actually how intimate the, the words are. It uh, it says the fragrance of your cologne is delightful. Your name is like the finest perfume. No wonder the young women adore you. So this is where the man is wearing is wearing a perfume essentially. Right? There's an intimacy in this language. This in, in, and not to get too uh, not gruesome, but death stinks. Like it actually does. I don't know if any of you, well, all of us on some level have encountered that smell. Um, I've encountered that smell in a fairly profound way. Uh, and it, it's awful. And it clings to you. And it's really hard to feel like you're clean after. I understand all of the language of, un, of the unclean stuff that's in the Old Testament with regards to that. It, it's bad. And so here we have something where, again, like, what, what are the comparisons? In the, in the place of the stench of death, the beauty of, of intimate fragrance. What an exchange. What a hope. What a call forward. Because right? we're being called out. We're being, we're being met in a place of loss. And then we're being reinstated we're being given back ourselves essentially vocation and then we're being called into this place from the stench of loss into this beautiful uh, exchange of sense right that's what the oil is about it's all what you smell it's beautiful and this has everything to do with who what we're called to as a people this is the gospel. This is the, this is the evidences of the gospel. And finally, we have this garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So here's the thing that I want to speak to you here. Garment of praise. I think we actually get this without a whole lot of interpretation. I think we understand what it is to dress up. To present ourselves in a way that's going to say it's party time. Right? And I think we also, a lot of us, know by personal experience or, or being in the orbit of of someone who struggles with the spirit of despair. Right? Now, what's a funny thing about a spirit of despair? If you know somebody, if you are known, and, and, and they're locked up in, a, in despair, 
Is there any garment of praise that's going to cover that up? I'm just going to tell you, not a chance. Not a chance. You can't fake a garment of praise with a spirit of despair. Right? And so what I want to talk about is the outward manifestation of what's going on inside. So God is not saying, Isaiah is not saying, God is not saying through Isaiah, it's important to understand how our scripture works, that your spirit of despair is going to be fixed by putting on a garment of praise. Now, I'm not saying don't worship when life sucks, because I think that that's a really powerful thing to do. In fact, that's in my history. The first thing I do in my worst moments was as soon as I had the capacity to, I sang. I sang. So I'm not saying don't do that. But this is not a methodology. And fear sometimes is part of the methodology. Oh, you have depression? Just sing a very song. that works for you, I'm so happy. If that's a brick wall for you, you have a lot of good company. Okay. The, this, is a, this is not a method, this is a, this is a promise. That, that there is a capacity for God to take, to, to step into the spirit of despair. And by the way, what despair is at the end of the day is a loss of hope. When you have lost hope, you are in despair. So let's also not like make an equation and say that depression, which I just sort of did, depression and despair are the same thing, right? Struggling through a physiological thing that makes it really easy for you to feel sad and hard for you to feel happy is a thing, right? It does not need to necessarily be without hope space. And I, you know, I just want to be sensitive to the fact that the church has mishandled this conversation a lot a lot, a lot of times. Right? And so whatever else I say, let's throw this as a, as a caveat, as a, as a container. Because I also want to boldly say that God can give us, that God can do something in our spirit such that we cannot help but put on a spirit of, or put on a parent's grace. Because it's an outward manifestation of something that God is doing. And I think we also need to declare that at the same time. God can do that. Right? In fact, in my worst moments, in my most hopeless moments, I would say that that was what I encountered in, in grief. Was something took place. Now it didn't dry up my tears. But it was an honest thing where I couldn't help but for even a moment I put on a garment of praise. So it's, it's an outward manifestation of the work of God which is a better promise you guys. It's a way better promise than just fake it till you make it as a worshiper. So the quality of this particular grace right is high, it's high it's a high quality grace. All of these all of these three things are high quality exchanges. Meeting us in these various ways that we grieve. 
comma, and next week we're gonna we're gonna wrap this, we're gonna wrap up this series, and then we're gonna begin Advent. I love Advent so much. Let's pray. your presence come in that place, Lord. 